This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. The following programme is a recording of a talk given by writer, trade unionist, lawyer and political commentator Morgan Godfrey. He was invited by Network Waitangi Ototahi to speak about the Treaty of Waitangi in our national life. Tēnā koutou katoa, nā mihi tuatahi ki a ngai tahu whānui, ki ngā maunga whakahirahire i tūtū mai nei, me te moane e pō karekare nei. E whakatau nei i a tātou katoa, tēnā koutou. Me mihi anō hoki ki o tātou tini mate, i o tātou marae maha, e noho honohono nei rātou i roto i te wairua tapu, nō reira haere ngā mate, haere, haere, haere atura. Me mihi anō ki a koe te rangatira tā tipine, Koutou ko Network Waitangi o Tautahi, tēnei te mihi ki a koutou. Nā koutou te kaupapa nei i awhina, i tautoko, nō reira tēnā koutou. Ki a koutou ngā mātāwaka, ngā karangatanga iwi kei konei, ngā maunga whakahi kua huihui mai nei, tēnā koutou. Tēnei te mihi atu ki a koutou katoa. E whakapau kaha nei ki te whakatinana i ngā moimoia, o tātou matua tipuna, nō reira tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. On my way down here, I was thinking, yes, finally a talk where no one's going to ask me about politics in the election. No Winston Peters, no Bill English, no Jacinda Ardern. But the more I thought about it, I realised, you know, you cannot talk about the treaty or tetiriti without talking about politics. Not necessarily party politics, but politics of that far more important kind, and that's politics and power. Whenever we talk about the treaty, and especially the treaty relationship, we are talking about power and power relations, whether that's the relationship between Māori and Tauiwi, whether that's the relationship between sovereignty and Tinoranga Tiratanga, or the relationship between those who wield power and those who are subject to it. And thinking about it on the flight down, you know, it hit me again that actually we can't really divorce it from party politics either. Um, because during this campaign, you know, how much did you hear about the treaty? Did any politician at all discuss its role in our national life? Did any politician promise to do more, or in Winston Peters' case, promise to do less with the treaty? You know, from where I stood as you know someone who was relatively close to it all. There was broadcast silence on almost every side. You know, we heard murmurs from Winston Peters, um, but otherwise no bold plans, no new interpretations, barely even lip service to what we can all agree is the country's founding document. You know, where were the treaty champions, or where even were the treaty haters? You know, did either National or Labour campaign on it? Not at all. So I think this is part of what I wanted to address tonight. Um, in this silence, how do New Zealanders understand the treaty? Um, and what might we do to reshape their understanding of the treaty in our national life? Um, so I guess what I propose to do is talk for about 20 minutes, um, and hopefully by that time you, you'll have some questions and we can have a, bit, a little bit of an interaction, maybe 20 to 30 minutes. Catherine, how long? Good, good. Um, yeah, the other thing I should probably mention is in this talk, I'm going to assume that 
you guys have a fairly decent understanding of the treaty, so I'm going to take a lot of things as read, like, you know, you'll hear the term kawanatanga, I'm not going to explain things like that. So if I do say something which you want me to explain a little bit further, um, just wait to the end and we can take questions and whatnot. So yeah, I'm going to start, I guess, by stating the obvious. There seem to be two accounts of the treaty in this country. These two popular accounts seem to consist of two jointly asserted but mutually exclusive facts. Under the first account, the treaty is a rat-eaten relic. It's a praiseworthy device for amusing and pacifying savages, as the New Zealand company once put it. Under this account of the treaty, it's an honourable document, but it should remain in the storage rooms that archives New Zealand. Ancient promises are irrelevant in modern times. Think of this one as the Winston Peters position. But the second account declares that we must dutifully comply with the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi. The English and Māori texts work at cross-purposes, so rather than privileging one understanding over another, we should adhere to a new understanding altogether. The Crown agrees to adhere to these principles, like active protection, so long as Māori accept, accept its sovereignty. This isn't so much a principled position as it is a compromised position, and it's the major party position, the position that both National and Labour take with Māori and the Treaty. Now, which account you prefer depends on whether you want to deny or affirm Māori rights. If it's the former, then the claim must be the Treaty creates no rights. Its ancient promises mean nothing in modern times. But if you prefer the latter, then the claim must be that the Treaty creates some rights. Its ancient promises still hold in modern times, just not what the Māori text actually says. So ever since the landmarch of the 1970s, the occupations of the 1980s, and the court cases of the 1990s, these two positions have been jostling for prominence in our national life. Advocates for that first account include, like I said, Winston Peters, the bloke who would remove all reference to the treaty and legislation. But there are some who are even more extreme, like um, local man about town, David Round, who say the treaty, we can all agree, is the country's founding document, but it is, in fact, not the proper treaty. The proper treaty is the Littlewood Treaty or something like that. There are also groups like Hobson's Pledge who come in and out of the national conversation as well. But in competition with that view or that spectrum of negative views are the views of the public service, the judiciary and the media. We should honour the treaty, they say, but that means adhering simply to its principles, finding coherence between competing meanings in the English language version and the Māori language version is impractical, hence why we have principles to aspire to. Um, as Lord Cook of Thorndon put it in his famous judgment in the Lands case, the treaty creates an enduring relationship akin to a partnership. This is like a statement of purpose for the public service, even if they may not always live up to it. But neither account ever seems to actually prevail in the national life. Sometimes the country prefers optimism, especially in the wake of historical treaty settlements. Whenever iwi settle with the Crown, um, say like Tuhoi recently, a little voice in the national psyche says it's safe to start moving on. Both treaty partners are square, or almost square. But in other years, the country seems to opt for scepticism. Look no further than Don Brash's Oriwa speech or Helen Clark's Foreshore and Seabed Act. That little voice in the national psyche says, maybe things are not as good as they seem. 
Perhaps one treaty partner, that's the Māori partner, is getting a little too confident and the other partner, the Crown, should remind her mate just who's in charge. In some ways this competition is kind of how things should be. No account should prevail because politics is about competing understandings of the world. And those understandings change over time. Sometimes we go back, sometimes we go forward, sometimes maybe even to the side. But I want to propose tonight another reason for why neither account prevails. And that reason is because we understand and implement the treaty all wrong. That's a little bit out of whack. You know, fewer and fewer people seem to agree with Winston Peters and David Round. Yet fewer and fewer people also seem to agree with the likes of Lord Cook, um, or at least fewer and fewer Māori seem to. Um, you know, it seems obvious, but it's worth repeating for the record. The words of the treaty promise more than its principles actually allow. The partnership principle is no substitute for Tenoranga Tiratanga in the Māori text. And principles like active protection might even work against Tenoranga Tiratanga because you are positioning Māori as passive beneficiaries of Crown protection. This isn't necessarily to deny the good that's come out of the principles and the policies that flow from them, like treaty settlements. But as Moana Jackson points out, treaties aren't settled, treaties are honoured. The treaty principles alone cannot reverse almost two centuries of inequality between Pākehā and Māori. Only power sharing can do that. So this is how I understand the treaty. Um, it's, not, it's my position, and I'm a political ideologue, but I like to think that it's not necessarily left, not necessarily right, um, but out in front. But again, that might not be strictly true. It can't be out in front because it's actually been the position of many Māori ever since the treaty was signed. You know, it's not something radical or new. It's only now a lot of people are starting to catch up. Um, you'll see that Catherine mentioned the Independent Working Group on Constitutional Transformation, which Moana Jackson was a part of. That's where you'll see this kind of thinking. Um, and that's where they suggest constitutional change along these lines, along power-sharing lines, um, and along lines that are consistent with the wording of the Māori text of the treaty. Um, so one of the interesting things that the working group suggests is that any constitutional reform or transformation, as they call it, creates two new sites of power. Well, sorry, creates one new site of power and affirms another. So it creates a kāwanatanga power, a new honourable one for the Crown, and it affirms Māori's uh, rangatiratanga power, the Māori rangatiratanga power. People often recoil at it because they can't really imagine actually what that might look like. What would a power for the Crown and a power for Māori actually look like in a constitution? Would it be one assembly for Tauiwi, one assembly for Māori? I think it probably would, and I don't think we should be afraid of that. But the interesting thing is, what about a third site? Where do they meet? And the constitutional um, working group suggests that not just do the, you create this new kāwanatanga power or, and affirm the rangatiratanga power for Māori, you also create this third site, where the two meet together, but this time on equal footing. Not where the Crown is setting the terms, not necessarily even where Māori is setting the terms, but where both are meeting in a neutral place. Of course, this is the kind of thing where if you mention it to people probably outside of this room, if you went onto the street and picked out someone at random, they'd think separatism, racism, Māori privilege. Because what 
two or three separate sites of power actually means is two separate systems. And we shouldn't shy away from actually saying that. Not only would it mean, say, that Ngaitahu runs its own social services, but also its own education system, perhaps modelled on kura kaupapa, kohanga, um, and maybe even its own justice system, modelled perhaps on what Moana Jackson was writing about in the 1980s. Of course, none of this is to say that New Zealanders would necessarily live apart from each other, would still live next door, would still work in the same places, would still marry. The only difference is this would happen within the context of an equal power relationship. And that's exactly what the Māori language version of the treaty promises. But of course, on the other hand, for many Māori, this is probably uncontroversial. As the Waitangi Tribunal found just recently in its Northland inquiry, the rangatira who signed the treaty in 1840 did not cede their sovereignty. They, they understood the treaty as affirming their tenorangatiratanga, let's not confuse that with sovereignty, and creating the new kawanatanga power for the crown. So yeah, I guess to reinforce that, in other words, the Māori text of rangatira who signed the treaty um, did was create a derivative power for the crown. It's kind of, I'm falling into legalistic terms here, but essentially carving out some of their authority for the crown, not surrendering their authority or their mana to the crown. It was, after all, the Treaty of Waitangi and not the Proclamation of Waitangi. As, you know, as good as probably you know, two separate sites of power sounds to us here, unfortunately this isn't how a good deal of New Zealanders actually understand the treaty. Instead, most New Zealanders would seem to understand the treaty as the death of a Māori system or the Māori system and the birth of a new Pākehā system. But we know from the Tribunal's Northern report that this isn't the case. And in fact, simple common sense would say it isn't the case as well. If you were someone in 1940, um, a rangatira, say, in 1940, why would you agree to 1840, sorry, 100 years ahead of myself, why would you agree to surrender your own mana? Um, but I suppose my concern here isn't how do we teach New Zealanders their own history. I think my concern is how do we actually implement a constitution where there are two sites of power, one for the Crown and one for Māori, and perhaps one site where we meet in the middle. Some people would say it's impossible, you know, it's too radical, we would need a written constitution, Geoffrey Palmer style, and no one's going to agree to that. Um, I suppose that is one way to do it, but I would say to people who think it's impossible, they don't actually understand the existing constitution or their own culture's intellectual history. You know, the wonderful thing about New Zealand, one, or perhaps possibly the only wonderful thing about New Zealand's existing constitution is it operates in what uh, the legal academics call the eternal present. That means we are free to make it and remake it as we please. No present parliament can ever bind a future parliament. Parliament may even decide to abolish itself. Very few countries operate like this. There's us and there's, um, I guess you'd call it the parent parliament in Westminster. So this constitutional setup is sometimes called an unwritten constitution. And what we deem part of that unwritten constitution isn't solely up to judges, but up to scholars and politicians and citizens as well. So unlike in the United States where judges say this is what the constitution means, this is what is included in the constitution, to actually determine what's included in our constitution is a matter of consens uh, consensus. Consensus among elites, yes, but a consensus 
that doesn't exist in any other country. And of course, I should mention here, of course, elites are always susceptible to pressure from below. Um, so this is what you know, a minority of scholars call a political constitution, where those who exercise power are held to account through politics and political institutions rather than the courts. Um, some of the scholars say that the constitution is no more and no less than what happens, which is another way of saying that everything is constitutional. Every treaty settlement is constitutional. Every court case concerning the treaty is constitutional. The other term that um, the scholars use is, sorry to keep referencing random scholars, is that the constitution is always in a process of becoming. This means that it's always changing with events. For example, you know, the treaty principles aren't cleanly and comprehensively outlined in legislation, but they are part of the political constitution, not because they're mentioned in that legislation, but because we measure our politicians and our institutions against those principles. This is how a political constitution works. Um, so Mark Hickford, again, sorry, this is the last scholar I'll cite, um, says the most enduring feature of our political constitution is the Māori insistence on treating any agreement with the Crown as never final, but only, quote, punctuated moments in conversations without end. So in other words, the political constitution, if we take what Mark um, says, is about two sites of power or two spheres, Māori and the Crown, in dialogue with each other. So it's my proposition that this dialogue itself creates that third site of power or that sphere, the sphere where Māori and the Crown meet to make their joint decisions. They meet in the, today they meet in the Waitangi Tribunal in treaty settlement negotiations, constitutional moments. They meet when holders of the Māori seats in Parliament join the government. They may even meet in public debates in the media. With a political constitution, the full promise of the treaty is always a little bit closer than we might actually think. But there's one problem um, with this understanding, and it's quite, it should be kind of obvious. When Māori and the Crown meet in this imagined third, uh, third place, they don't meet on equal terms. The Crown is the party setting the terms, and Māori are the party responding to them. Whether uh, that's as true for the Waitangi Tribunal as it is for the Māori seats in Parliament, you're still operating within the Kawanatanga rather than between two different sites of power. So this is the challenge for political constitutionalism. It's creating that third site of power where both Māori and the Crown meet on equal and neutral footing. Um, of course, again, if you went out onto the street and you asked someone about it, they'd say, well, tough shit, you know, this is, this is how life works in every other country, you know, Australia to Canada to here. One culture um, and party gets to draw, draw the line between the acceptable and the unacceptable, the normative and the abnormal. Which culture gets to draw the line as a matter of power and where the line is drawn is in a matter of ideology. In New Zealand, the culture that draws it is obviously Pākehā, and where they draw it, it will often exclude Māori. And this is exactly what those two popular accounts of the treaty do. They draw a line and they declare, we go no further. Winston Peters and David Round and Hobson's Pledge and Don Brash, they say, yes, we have a treaty, just do not expect it to mean anything much for Māori. The public service and the judiciary and the media say, 
Yes, the treaty does mean something, just not what the Māori text actually says. There are principles, but an equal relationship is perhaps taking things too far, too fast. So I guess the challenge is, it's up to us to change that, to imagine a third account, one that adheres to what the Māori text of the treaty actually says. That's affirming tenoranga tiratanga for Māori or for iwi and hapu, and creating this new kawanatanga power. It's up to us to do this because social and political reality doesn't change simply because it's unjust. You know, everyone here would know that. It changes when we advocate, we protest, we dissent in, um, I was going to say reform, but I should say transform. And when we advocate and protest and dissent, our political constitution can perhaps change with it. We can take it forward, or we can stand idle while others like Winston Peters or Don Brash or whoever take it back. Of course, this kind of thing always comes with a bit of a warning. Um, be careful, because you know throughout the history of this country, um, the qualities that we say we cherish in our democracy, we condemn in our politics. You know, we revere abstract equality, but we hesitate when it means substantive equality for Māori or for workers or for whoever. There are plenty of New Zealanders who are willing to admonish Māori underrepresentation in government, yet few who are willing to support any measures to actually achieve the equality they claim to support. There are plenty of intellectuals and politicians who applaud the rule of law, yet few who supported the rule of law so much that they opposed the Foreshore and Seabed Act. Standing up for an equal treaty relationship often means inviting attacks. Which isn't to put you off, um, it's just to say that throughout the history of this country, the burden of compromise has always fallen to Māori. So we can only push what's compatible with the Crown system, they say. Compromise, they say. Of course we already do. You know, For each iwi, it's typical a treaty settlement represents about 1-5% to of what was lost. So Māori are the party agreeing to concede 95-99% to of what was lost, while the Crown is the party agreeing to return 1-4% to of what was gained. So I guess this is my way of saying, yes, there are two partners to the treaty relationship, Tangata Whenua and Tangata Tiriti, and but both compromises and triumphs must be shared equally. It cannot be left just to Māori for advocate, to advocate for these kinds of things. And that's why places like Network Waitangi or Tautahi um, are so encouraging, because I actually don't see this as often as I'd like when I travel around the country. Often, you know, just in politics and political commentary and journalism, people will often ring up and say, Morgan, do you want to talk about the treaty because we need a Māori? Um, <laughs> when there are, you know, I say there are two, two partners to the treaty, you know, we shouldn't um, compartmentalise or ghettoise the treaty as simply a Māori issue because it's not. So, yeah, I guess the point I wanted to leave you with is that I hope that we can change our existing political constitution. I hope the fact that that constitution is always changing in response to events is an advantage to us. Um, and I hope that it one day can provide that third site of power where Māori and the Crown meet on equal footing. I hope this because the alternative is to burn it all down, and I don't think that... Well, actually, I do support that. <laughs> that wouldn't be very good for Pākehā. 
That was Morgan Godfrey speaking about how we might put the Treaty of Waitangi at the heart of our national life. He was brought to Christchurch by Network Waitangi Ototahi. 